Women's K Talk YA now presents Ember Queen, Part 2, from the Ash Princess Trilogy, by Laura Sebastian. Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Kitty Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished up the Ash Princess Trilogy by Laura Sebastian. We read the finale, or the final book, which was called Ember Queen. Did you just feel weird saying finale because that was the name of a book that we read? <laughs> no, I actually did not think oh. of that because that was a while ago. <laughs> I should have said that the finale of finale when we were there. Oh, well. I wouldn't be surprised if we did, to be completely honest. But, <laughs> That's a good um, point. But yeah, I uh, did hear, though, that Laura Sebastian is coming out with two new books next year. So I'm really excited that this chapter is closed. <laughs> but we have more stuff to look forward to from her. I'm so excited, too, because I think she is an author that I'm really excited about. Like, I'm really interested to see what else she has to write. I think she is good at telling a story, keeping the pace flowing, writing good characters. Like, I think she does most everything right. And so I'm excited for, like, a new a new world that she creates. Yeah, and it's not to say it's all perfect by any means, but if this is, like, her first, like, if this is what our starting place, I'm just excited to see how much better it gets, too. Yep. So what did you think overall? <sighs> wow. Okay. <laughs> um, Tell me all of your thoughts now. Go. <laughs> how much time do you have? There were some really great scenes in this second half. Like, I felt like... There were some moments where she created really great suspense and I was like honestly terrified for a lot of the characters and I feel like in a lot of these books we get to the end and I kind of am able to predict what's going to happen and and yes I think we could have all predicted a few things like you know blaze berserking out in a blaze of glory and um the astrians winning you just wanted to say that again <laughs> but there were a couple moments where i was like i legit don't know if soren's gonna make it into the prison in time and i i don't know how uh, thora's gonna escape crest so like there were some excellent moments that um really kept me guessing what was gonna happen and i appreciate that yeah, I would say I finished the book and I was like, that was amazing. I loved it. Oh my goodness, so cool. It was great, perfect. Like, I was like on a book high when I finished and I enjoyed reading it and it sucked me in and all this stuff. But then, since then, because it's been a couple days, I've been thinking about, and this, I think this just happens to me where it's actually a good problem. But again, I just like, there were things that I wish had been handled differently or I wanted more information mm-hmm. about. And so now that I've had time to think about it, I'm kind of like, ooh, but, ooh, but. But, again, when I was reading it, I was, like, totally in it and loving it and all was good. But I think my biggest disappointment still, and we talked about this last week, is I almost think we made it too complicated with some of the magic stuff in book three. Like, there were Mm -hmm. so many kind of new twists and rules, and it was hard to keep up with. And it, I almost felt like we didn't need it. And I was 
thinking about how in book two we did such a good job expanding the world and we had a couple glimpses of it in book three but I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't see more of like how the other countries reacted to what was happening mm-hmm. on the island and and I don't know in some of the crest stuff like I liked her empowering women thing but then when she also was like going mind like I almost wish she had just taken an idea to the extreme instead of also like going crazy with the mind madness or I don't know just certain things I was almost like yeah I get it and it works and it's cool but you didn't need this extra layer and I almost wish we had kept it simple and like went back to some of the stuff that I loved in the first two books I would agree because the whole like seeing Cress and her dreams and introducing that aspect it made the book very insular rather than opening it up to like a larger world and I agree with you that was something that I I missed as well and I think the dream thing again because it was just in this book and we didn't really understand how it worked and there were some good things I like what I liked about it was we didn't know it was happening and then the way information was passed on like it was kind of our only glimpse in what was going on at Crest and the the capital mm-hmm. and stuff and I'm glad we had that insight because I don't know how else we would have gotten it since it's a single perspective story and I wouldn't have necessarily yeah. wanted to add a second perspective so I did like that part but I I almost either wish it had been introduced earlier so it wasn't also new or I wish it, we had found another way around it yeah I mean let's start from where this half yeah. of the book uh started because we did get a, a glimpse of like more people in the kingdom when they go to the land of Lord Ovilgon. I keep seeing this name and I keep either calling him Lord Ogilvy or Lord of Glen, like from The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> so do with that what you will. But they have to move their army through this Lord's land. And I love this scene because. Again, we get to see like some shades of gray in characters because technically mm-hmm. this lord is a Cal- Calavaxian and he's an enemy, but he also trained Soren, we learned. And Soren like mm-hmm. lived with him and his family for a year, and so like Soren has a fondness for him and you know, his lord uh, Ovulgun's children, you know, know Soren well. So there's like this kind of uncomfortable feeling that they're like trespassing on this lord's property. Um, and, and they're, they're friends, or they were friends at one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really, I agree. I like this scene, and I even like the idea, this is kind of when we introduce the idea, well, maybe not introduce, but it's one of the first times that we sort of dig into what's going to happen after, if they succeed, what does mm-hmm. the world look like afterwards? And Theo makes the claim, basically, or I think it's here, maybe she ends up questioning it here and doing it later, but talking about how... Like, the children shouldn't suffer for their parents' crime, Mm -hmm. and that creates this cycle. And part of me loved that as a point, but the other part of me was kind of like it – she almost – I was like, how do you come to this conclusion? Or maybe it bothered me at the end when she was figuring out the justice system, and it was like her first idea was, like, accepted by everyone. And part of me loved that they, like, addressed it, and I liked her solution, but I almost wish we had seen more conflict – because those are really – complicated things to figure out oh, how really? you deal with the enemy and how I'm like not interested in hearing that <laughs> I don't know why this is where I love like the politics and the like strategy behind some of it I don't know I felt like it was just enough because I also love the idea of like 
she has to tread carefully because if she punishes these children, like when they grow up, they're going to hate the Astrians just like the Astrians hated the Calavaxians. And it'll just be the new generation rising up and overthrowing the ones that enslaved them. So she was kind of like, okay, this cycle ends with me. We're going to tread very carefully and treat everyone fairly. I like her conclusion, and I I guess part of me wishes that there had been a scene between her and, like, one of these children or something where she, like, where she kind of came to that conclusion. Because part of me is like, okay, if you've been hunting these people and, like, treating them as the enemy, why are you so easy, easily ready to forgive the children, too, when everyone else is struggling with it? And I get it, but I almost wish we had seen, like, she saw something happen to the kid and was like, oh, I remember when that happened to me, and I don't want to start this, like, or I don't know, like, just more of a... Well, she kind of did, a little bit, because remember when, um, I forget, the, uh, the cousin, Riga, she comes, and she has, like, one of their children being held hostage. True. Mm -hmm. And she was, like, kind of using him as a threat, and, and she's, like, gets around it by giving her the vial of in Catria, whatever, the fire poison yep. in exchange for their son. So she kind of had that moment where she sees this, like, poor child being used as a pawn. Yeah. And, like, this kid didn't do anything wrong. And, like, you know, he, why should he suffer? True. So I bought it. I guess the thing that I feel like was missing a little bit in this book was the only person who was bad and went good was sort of Soren. And... I almost wish we had seen more of the Calaxians, Calavex, whatever they are, um, or, like, even maybe some of the lower peasants or something, like, mm. also question the rule or turn, like, I, I don't know. It almost felt like we saw Cress and we saw Sorn, but we didn't really see the people themselves mm. very much, and I think that was the one thing I thought was missing. But again, I I love this one glimpse we had into it, which is what made me hungry for more. <laughs> That's fair. I, I get that. I think it's good to get multiple perspectives. And I think, like, a lot of them, there there was some mention where she was like, yeah, the Calavaxian peasants, like, probably weren't treated that well either. So, like, what do they think of this? Like, we really only have the royalty's perspective or, like, these high-bearing lords who own a ton of land. So, yeah, I, I wonder if some of them would have kind of allied themselves with the Astrians. Yeah. Or just seeing more than normal people. But I guess, again, I thought the pacing was good. The char- like, over- There was nothing I would replace mm-hmm. with any of that. And I think the length was actually good. So it's just me hungry for more. Well, I would say the dreams kind of got a little tedious for me. I think an interesting development was where we learned that Theo can be hurt in the dreams because she has one where, like, Cress stabs her. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. But then I got really upset whenever um, Theo goes and finds Cress in her dream and she, like, has the opportunity to stab her and she doesn't. And I was just like, that would never have happened. Like, I get why they did it as a plot device so they could have, like, this grand meeting in real life at the end. But I was just like, you're not going to give up a chance to kill her when you had it. Yeah, I had mixed feelings about that because at least she addressed in part that getting rid of Cress wouldn't give her the country because if she did it in a dream, someone else would just fill the void and she wouldn't know. But I I agree too. I was like, why don't you just, or even if you don't stab her, like kidnap her or like do something where you, yeah. Because that was also the scene where Cress 
kills um, Laius. Like, she reveals that she was able to create a version of the Valestra that, like, mind controls people. And she makes him cut his own throat. And then Mm. Theo's like, I could kill you, but I'm not going to. And I was just like, what? Yeah, you would think just in a moment of passion she would have, even if it wasn't a strategic move. And vice versa, I feel like, why would Cress not kill Theo? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like, I sort of can understand if Theo could keep her head, the strategy behind not killing Cress until they had taken the capital. Mm -hmm. But I don't really understand why Cress wouldn't kill Theo given the chance. Like, yeah, she stabbed her in the stomach once, but it was a non-fatal wound. And I don't know. I agree. Um, okay, well, what was your favorite scene? Um, I mean, I feel like one of those final scenes would be the coolest to see because so much was happening at once. Mm -hmm. Like, if you had where the ball is dropped and someone is, like, mind-controlled stabbing people and people are stopping them and then someone explodes and then you have this wind that no one knows where it's coming from and then this tree is, like, all of those things happening at once. Like, I just feel like that could be a really cool scene visually. Oh, in the courtyard. Yeah, like... With her, like, wraiths that she created. Yeah. And wasn't that when Theo jumps off the balcony? Because Cress is, like, confronting her and then Heron sends the air to keep her afloat. That would be really cool to see. Yeah, and then she, like, has that moment with the tree growing, too. That was, like, such a cool visual to me just because, again, it's this, like, dead garden, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And also just, like, all the orbs that they drop of, like, the poison and Heron's just making them all hover. Mm Mm-hmm. And just, like, that kind of tension is, that would be cool to see. And especially, like, while reading that, I didn't really know what was going to happen next. Like, that was Mm kind of what you were saying to your point, like, I had some ideas about what wouldn't happen, and I had some thoughts about how things might end, but I didn't really know how to get from where we were to to that place, and there were a lot of unexpected surprises. So also, like, if you did that well cinematically or whatever, I think there'd be a lot of, like, excitement, tension, good. It would just be Mm -hmm. a really great scene to see. The other, I would just love to be on a boat looking at the stars because that was like peaceful and it sounded like beautiful and like being with all the friends but then I love when they like are all getting antsy and it's like they're not even talking to each other anymore and <laughs> and whatnot the fire scene I think would be too I wouldn't want to see that that sounds oh that was actually kind of cool because that's when um Cress uses Dagmar and like her other wraith ladies to like lure Theo into the mines mm-hmm. or they did they like scream and pretend like they're trapped and then they have that awesome fight where like Theo causes this, like, fiery explosion. Yeah, where she doesn't even realize her own power. And I think, yeah. again, my disappointment there was just, I still I liked when Theo didn't have strong magic. Which might sound yeah, weird, but that was one of my favorite things about her at the beginning, was that she was so partially underestimated, but also didn't have much at her disposal. And still mm-hmm. found a way to, like, survive and thrive and rely on other people. And so it sounds so weird, but I was actually kind of disappointed when she didn't need other people or when she could do things on her own. (laughs) I agree. There's something nice about a main character who doesn't have the powers that everyone else does and Mm -hmm. still manages to, like, kick butt, you know? Especially in a leadership role. Like, to, to lead this group and have, like, so much respect for not abusing the magic and stuff. I don't know. It didn't, like, super, super bother me, but I, I sort of wish we had 
been able to tell the story without, at least without her going into the mine. I almost liked it when she got magic, but it was like unimpressive. So anytime that her magic was like crazy, like that explosion. And then also there was one time when they were invading the castle, right? Where someone, that was when someone stabbed uh, Heron, I think. And she like, oh, she cauterizes the wound. Before that, though, she like somehow like kills everyone else in the room. And they're like, whoa, how'd you do that? And then she gets exhausted, remember? Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, anytime her magic, like, was unexplainably powerful, I was sort of like, ugh. Well, the one thing that disappointed me was we never got really an explanation for why Theo had these powers in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because we learned at the beginning that you only get them if you go into the mine. And she never went into a mine, like, when she was small. And she had the power somehow regardless. And we never really tied that that missing piece back together. Like, why did some kids just spontaneously develop these powers. Well, and, because, yeah, she had it even before the Encantio poison right. or whatever. Yeah. Well, and then we also found out that Cress was mind-mad, which I, again, had mixed feelings about learning that. But mm-hmm. I'm sort of like, if she's mind-mad, then why isn't Theo mind-mad? Like, why didn't her powers bubble over? Yeah. Right. I don't know. But again, I, this is where I like nitpick on little things. And if I'm sure. nitpicking on these things, that means overall it was good. And I just, again, love the pacing. I love some of the moments for other characters too. Like, um, I did like Art in Dragon's Vein, like when Art got harmed. Mm-hmm. And you saw when Theo was telling her aunt that like she was okay, but she was hurt. It, even though they didn't yeah. quite get their like 100% reconciliation, like we're best friends now, you did see that she cared about her daughter. And mm-hmm. there were a couple scenes like that that I think I really appreciate. When Heron got his lover, Leonidas's land back. Yeah. I know. And they made him the lord of it. Yeah. I, I liked that Theo gave him his boyfriend's lands in the end. I don't know. I thought there were a lot of things that did come together really, really nicely, but I also felt. Well, I think, again, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe going too much into the how do you deal with people afterwards would have been boring or mm-hmm. I would have been like, okay, it ended. Why are we dwelling on this? Yeah. But I also feel like maybe I wish it had just sped ahead a year and then they had their conclusion. Like, we didn't have any more writing, but it just wasn't like, oh, we just defeated the queen and I have, like, the perfect solution for dealing with our enemies, like, on the way to the ball. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I was pretty happy with the way it ended, honestly, I have to say. Um, and I did, I did win the bet over if she would end up with Soren or Blaze. Yeah, but you kept switching sides. We never really specified what <laughs> I was going to win, but. You get all the honor. Pride, not prize. Oh, okay. All right, I'll take that. That sounds fine. <laughs> um, and we did finally get Blaze's, like, act of glory where he started the earthquake. And, I mean, he essentially saved the day just like we thought he would he brought the whole castle down but by growing a tree right or was it just an earthquake maybe i got confused i thought he was like growing a giant tree or something yeah and then he kept going and then like brought the whole castle down but again my question was why couldn't you punch him then yeah or i mean distract him or something really want blaze anymore in the picture because i sure didn't (laughs) well maybe after he'd have a chance to whatever but i also i did love yes she ended up with Soren, kind of, but she also <laughs> admitted that she would never marry, or, you know, she was true to tradition and was going- the queens don't marry. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't, like, some, like, overly romantic, like, and now we're gonna be happily ever after. Like, yes, they're still right. into each other, and they're 
they will have a relationship and whatnot. But it, I like that she didn't like turn her back on tradition to be with a guy. Agreed. Uh, that would have made me angry. Mm-hmm. And oh my god, I loved the scene with Soren. I think this was probably my favorite scene. I was freaking out whenever they infiltrate the palace using the tunnels and then they they have to oh um, yeah i was freaking they're out like too. okay we ha- soren like you have to make it back to the cell at this time or it's gonna be really bad and they're like in the cell and they're waiting for him and they're like we need to close the doors we need to close the doors and she's just like just give him like two more minutes and then like you see him come around the corner and he's like racing to get to the cells and then finally, Miley <laughs> yeah, she did went. something. I almost she, forgot about that. I was like, she never redeemed herself. No, that's where she redeemed herself. <laughs> yeah, like she shot the guards and like just gave him enough time to slip between the bars. And I also loved that we didn't know why it was so important for him to get in. Like we had no idea what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And then after they shut the doors and Heron... Um, gives them air bubbles and art floods the prison and like the water's rising up 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 and like they can breathe because they're in mm-hmm. the cell but the guards can't and they have they that awful moment yeah. where they're like what they're watching the guards like drown in front of them and then Soren like you know that it could have been Soren and it was oh it just gave me chills yeah so scary although it was again Part of me got it and part of me was annoyed with Theo because she did, we did that same thing again where we like talked way too much about whether she would choose Soren or her country. And it's like, okay, yeah, we know you'll choose your country. But I agree. The tension, like it was, besides that like line, the tension of whether he'll make it or not, I, I was worried that Soren would not, I was worried that neither one of them would make it. She'd survive, but she, there would be no love interest. We'd both lose. But no, I was, I was pretty happy with the way it ended. Yeah. Um, did you do any research this week? Okay, so, (laughs) you know, if I start that way, it's going to be good. So I read this article this week about a tree that owns itself, and I was like, oh, I'll do something because Heron gets, inherits the land and blah, blah, blah. But I know we've also looked at Funny Wills or something before, so then that scene at the end with the tree, so I looked up famous trees, basically. Okay. (laughs) But my favorite one, and the one that started it all, is this tree that owns itself. So what does that mean? In Athens, Georgia, there is a tree that legally owns itself and the land within eight feet of the base. So it's a white oak tree, and it used to be the property of Colonel William Henry Jackson, W.H. Jackson, and they think it started growing in sometime between the mid-16th and 18th centuries, but by the early 1800s, it was considered the tallest tree in Athens, and it was the most famous tree in the U.S. I don't really know why. Maybe just because it was old and tall. And Jackson, for whatever reason, I guess, like, the family, like, was really involved in, like, politics and education and whatnot and had all these, like, fond memories of the tree and growing up on it. So it used to be on their land. And he decided to deed the tree its legal ownership. So between 1820 and 1832, he said, I, W.H., or, like, filled out, I, I don't know, legally somehow gave the tree its land. And, like, a decent amount of land. Like, more land than you probably have in the city, you know? I mean, it's... Yeah. Um, but anyways, so then, this is gets kind of sad. So the tree got old, and in 1906, <laughs> there was erosion, and in 1907, there was some big ice storm, And it was, like, weakened by rot and all this stuff. So the tree actually ended up falling in 1942. But regardless, 
its son replaced it. So, um... Well, it had a baby? How does this work? So, they took one of the little seedlings from the tree that had, like, one of the oak acorns or whatever comes off of an oak. I guess I don't know if it's an acorn. So they planted a new tree and dubbed it the son of the tree that owns itself. And because <laughs> of how inheritance rules work, because it was the son oh of the no. tree, now that tree owns the same land. So yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. That is bizarre. Right? I guess there's another tree that owns itself somewhere in Alabama too, but um, it's pretty cool. It just never occurred to me to even do that. Well, and I just think it's funny, too, that it's, like, lasted. So I could see someone being like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I want to give this tree its freedom. But, like, why would everyone honor it and be like, yeah, that's that's legit. And we'll pass it on to its son. And why wouldn't you just say, like, I own this tree so you can't, like, <laughs> cut it down or plan around it or anything and just, like, I guess because they wouldn't, like, pass it down. Because it was hundreds of years old. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. So then I looked up other famous trees because, you know... No, there were so many. There's got to be a lot more. Um, so one such famous tree is the ash brittle yew, which is a seven-trunked yew in ash brittle, which is a remote village in Britain, and it's thought to be one of the oldest living things in Britain. Some people think it's between 3,500 and 4,000 years old. What? So that would mean that it was already like a mature tree when Stonehenge was built, and some believe that, like, famous old, like, really, really old chiefs are buried beneath it. Um, uh, I didn't know trees lived that long. Maybe I didn't either. Well, and I think that's amazing. a little bit abnormal. So then there's the Ger- General Sherman tree, which is in California's Sequoia National Park. And it's the largest tree by volume anywhere in the world. And in 1975, its volume was slightly over 52,500 cubic feet, which is more than half of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. What? Yeah. Um, And that one's thought to be 2,000 years old, which I guess is not very old for a sequoia because some of them live more than 3,000 years, which, again, just is crazy. Um, Then, oh, I thought this one was really cool. I probably am not going to pronounce this right, but there's the Tree of Tenere which is located 250 miles from any other tree for most of the 20th century. So it's the world's most isolated tree. Hmm. And it's like on this mountain in the middle of the desert that had, they like didn't know how it was getting water at all, I think, for a long time. Yeah. But then a supposedly drunk Libyan truck driver slammed into it in 1973 so now its remains it? are in a mausoleum, and there's just a oh, no. metal sculpture in its place. Wait, 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 wait. How drunk do you have to be to hit the only <laughs> tree in the middle of a desert for miles around? That is a great question. Yeah. That is hysterical. That reminds me of the Bob's Burgers episode where <laughs> Tina's driving in the parking lot, and she hits the only car in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, another famous one is Anne Frank's tree. So mm. it's one of the oldest ones in Amsterdam and she wrote about it. It was like what she could see outside of her window. It was a white horse chestnut outside of her window when she was in hiding. Um, it was scheduled to be cut down in 2007, but a bunch of people like created a foundation to provide for its care. Oh, good. Including like iron support structures and all this other stuff to keep it from falling down. But then in August, 2010, the tree blew down in a storm 
and knocked over its iron supports, but again, saplings from the trees, chestnuts had already been created and have since been planted in sites around the world. I think there are seven in the U.S., seven of the saplings. Wow. And then... That's really cool. uh, Hyperion is the world's tallest known living tree, over 380 feet tall, and it's in Redwood National and State Parks in California, Um, and it was discovered in 2006 by a pair of naturalists who named it Hyperion, but... I don't even know how you do this, but its precise location is kept a secret to protect the tree. So I don't... Wouldn't you want to make it known so that people don't accidentally, like, carve their initials into it? Or, like, wouldn't you be able to, like, figure it out if it's just taller than everything else? I don't know. (laughs) But anyways, I guess it has some woodpecker damage at the top, so it would be even taller, but except for that. And then the last one on the list is the 9-11 survivor tree. So when mm-hmm. when 9-11 happened, there was this tree in the rubble that looked dead and like its trunk was charred and its upper branches were shattered. And I guess ultimately only one of the branches mm-hmm. was still alive, but the New York City Parks Department took a chance on it and dedicated a bunch of care in the Bronx Nursery and it recovered and it's now called the survivor tree and was planted at the National September 11 Memorial and Museum. Oh, I love that. There's also one that survived the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing Hmm. that I think was an elm tree that's also called a survivor tree. But, so I get, uh, they also have a bonsai that survived Hiroshima and a pine tree that survived the 2011 tsunami in Japan. Wow. So, kind of cool. That's cool that they kind of try to preserve them, at least when they can, and use them as memorials. Also, I didn't realize there were like seven more trees on this list that I didn't read about. No. <laughs> so there, there might be even more interesting, famous trees on out there in the world. So um, go some do ones, some though. more research. Yeah. <laughs> so I and oh, and this is also appropriate because we're gonna post this on Earth Day. There you go. So go plant a tree, and maybe it'll be famous in three thousand years. Who knows? Yeah, you won't be around <laughs> to see it, but it's possible. <laughs> One of my favorite, I think it's a Chinese proverb, is the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. The second best time to plant a tree is today. I love that one. Good thing to keep in mind. I mean, it's good for just, like, doing things that you said you were going to do, too. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe you should have started earlier, but if you you can't go back and change the past, so start now. It's not too late. Yep. Um, Okay, I actually really like my research this week. Oh, good. Do you usually not like your research? No, I mean, sometimes... You know, some weeks are better than others. <laughs> it is fun. I almost feel like when I have a really good idea, my research is sometimes disappointing versus when I like accidentally stumble on famous trees yeah. and I'm like, oh, this is actually fascinating. But anyways, what did you research? Okay, well, I was inspired by Heron when he gets stabbed and they're in the odd predicament of him being the only heir guardian. And so Theo's like, Heron, do you think you can heal yourself? And he's like, I don't know. I've never actually tried. So I researched surgeons who performed surgery on themselves. Oh my goodness. I love it. I found the most amazing story. Get ready for this. Okay, wait. Okay, now I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) So there was a man named Dr. Leonid Rogozov, and he was a Soviet general practitioner who was dispatched on a Soviet Antarctic expedition in 1960. Um, they were there. They were going to be there for a year. Okay. So he was in Antarctica, and he was the only doctor stationed there. 
That would make me nervous. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know. And while he was there, he developed appendicitis. Ooh. I hear that's not good. Yeah. So, okay. So he was with 12 men. Um, they were pretty much cut off completely from the outside world because they were... This happened in the polar winter of March 1961. The best time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, they were essentially trapped at this station. They had no access to transportation. No one was going in. No one was coming out. So, he woke up um, one morning and he experienced weakness, nausea, fever, and later he had pain in the lower right portion of his abdomen. So, okay. Also, can I interrupt? You said he was a doctor. What kind of doctor was he? A general practitioner. Okay. So, not even a surgeon. Right. Um, so he eventually knew that if he was going to survive, he would have to perform surgery on himself. Oh my goodness. That would be my worst nightmare. Even worse than getting put in jail for something I didn't do. Well, so he has a diary that he kept during this time and he woke up when he realized this was happening. He wrote, it seems that I have appendicitis. I am keeping quiet about it, even smiling. Why frighten my friends? Who could be of help? A polar explorer's only encounter with medicine is likely to have been in a dentist chair. Oh my so goodness. So he basically I'm impressed like, even if someone else did his surgery that with appendicitis, because I hear that's extremely painful. It's very painful. He was just yeah. writing that journal entry too. That's also impressive. He's, he's kind of cool. Continue. Well, he wrote, uh, apparently he like tried cooling the area he tried taking some antibiotics but nothing was working so eventually he wrote i did not sleep at all last night it hurts like the devil a snowstorm whipping through my soul wailing like a hundred jackals like i love how dramatic he is yes um still no obvious symptoms that perforation is imminent but an oppressive feeling of foreboding hangs over me this is it i have to think through the only possible way out to operate on myself. Oh my goodness. It's almost impossible, but I can't just fold my arms and give up. So, um, on the first day of May, at 2 o'clock in the morning, they started this operation. He had the help of a driver and a meteorologist <laughs> who held the instruments for him and held up a mirror so he could observe like what he was doing. Oh um, my goodness. They said after about 30 to 40 minutes, he had to start taking breaks because he was getting weak and very dizzy. Um, and he wrote afterwards, he said, I worked without gloves. It was hard to see. The mirror helps, but it also hinders. After all, it's showing things backwards. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, the bleeding is quite heavy, but I take my time. Opening the peritoneum. Um, I injured my gut and had to sew it back up. Oh my goodness. So um, he, did he have any anesthesia? I don't think so. I mean, maybe he had some local. Maybe topically. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And that is so funny. I was thinking about the mm-hmm. mirror thing too, because I have trouble, like if you try and write in the mirror or whatever. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So he said, every four to five minutes, I rest for 20 to 25 seconds. Finally, here it is, the cursed appendage. With horror, I noticed the dark stain at its base. That means just a day longer and it would have burst. Um, He said, at at the worst moment of removing the appendix, I flagged. My heart seized up and noticeably slowed. My hands felt like rubber. Well, I thought, this is going to end badly. And all that was left (laughs) was removing the appendix. And that 
and then I realized basically I was already saved. So what he did then was he um, applied antibiotics in his in the opening in like the cavity. He closed the wound. The operation itself lasted an hour and forty five minutes. Um, there are photos of it, which oh. I don't recommend that you watch that you look at. But there are photos of him performing his surgery on himself. I don't want to see those. And he had his um, he, his body temperature return returned to normal. He was able to have his stitches, well, he removed his stitches a week after the operation, and he was back doing his regular duties in two weeks. Oh my goodness. Okay, also though, if you have two people in the room with you, would it not make more sense to talk one of them through it than to just do it yourself? Maybe. No, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I guess if they have no experience. If, the only, if, if one was a driver yeah. and the other one was a meteorologist, yeah. like... I mean... No, okay. I think, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So he um, lived until uh, the year 2000 when he died of lung cancer, but he um, did not die from this surgery that he performed on himself. Oh, man. That is I think it's amazing. Quite incredible. Also, anytime I have any pain in my, like, lower abdomen or whatever, I tell James that I have appendicitis and he never takes me seriously, but oh, uh, no. someday it might be true. Um, he said that in later years he rejected all glorification of his deed because um, a lot of people use him as an example of like human will, a human will to live. And he just said, my job was like any other and my life was like any other. Yeah, I would say... Not true. Not everyone could do that, sir. No one I know. Not Well, yeah. <laughs> I think I know some people who are determined enough to do that, honestly. I guess... Part of it is I know very few people who could anyways. Like, even if I decided I was determined enough, I wouldn't be capable of it. (laughs) But I guess I do know some doctors. They would maybe, you know. But, wow. So, yeah, I I was very excited about my research. Well, so what have you done today? Do you feel like a bum? Because I didn't perform surgery on myself. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. I'll never live up to that. (laughs) In just an hour and 45 minutes? Two weeks? Back on his feet. Back to normal. Walking around Antarctica. We've been four weeks in quarantine or whatever, and I haven't accomplished half of that, so. But you know what we did do? What? We came up with a fan name for this series. Oh, yeah! (laughs) We're going to be berserkers. It is nice to not have to worry about that all of a sudden right now. But what else do we talk about then? We came up with it, like, the first week that we started reading this book. It was so easy. Basically, as soon as we realized how fun it is to say berserk as a noun, verb, adjective, etc. <laughs> um, oh, we have to assign a rating to this series, though. Okay, how many How many minds would you give it out of... How many are there? Four? Uh, fire, earth, air, water. How many gemstones... How many gemstones would you give it out of ten, just to keep okay. it? Eight and a half? I was going to say eight, but I could see eight and a half. <laughs> if anything, the third book was my least favorite, and not even because I didn't like it, but just because it started so strong and, mm. like, set my expectations so high, and I just, usually the second book is my least favorite, or I think it has a slow start, so I think, I just, I'm very impressed. I agree. Well done, Laura Sebastian. We can't wait to keep reading what you write. We will be following you further. Yeah, one of our next books did you see that one? It's like a series about these three or four queen triplets yeah. or something, and they get sent off, but they're like trained as spies. So they're like married off to foreign rulers, but they're like 
sent us spies, and I love that idea. <laughs> totally reminds me of um, Three Dark Crowns. Yes, but like maybe even better because it like is that meets all of our spy stories meet I don't know I love that they're not turning what well, who knows but it doesn't sound like they're turning against each other that was my least favorite thing about three dark crowns sister against sister yeah you're not into that <laughs> um cool well um do we want to talk about our next series yes is it a series no actually okay <laughs> good point this is our very first standalone book that we are going to read for this podcast so we've never done this before but I'm pretty excited I like how you specified for this podcast, but I guess that's right, true. Yeah. We have read standalone books before. Um, okay, so we are reading The Kingdom of Back by Marie Lou. Which we all know that we love Marie Lou, so this should be good. Do you want to read a little bit about it? Sure. <clears throat> Born with a gift for music, Nanerl. Is that how I say it? Okay. Nanerl. That sounds good. Okay. Born with a gift for music, Nanerol Mozart has just one wish, to be remembered forever. Just a simple little wish. (laughs) But even as she delights audiences with her masterful playing, she has little hope she'll ever become the acclaimed composer she longs to be. She is a young woman in 18th century Europe, and that means composing is forbidden to her. She will perform only until she reaches a marriageable age. Her tyrannical father has made that much clear. As Nanerol's hope grows dimmer with each passing year, the talents of her beloved younger brother, Wolfgang, only seem to shine brighter. His brilliance begins to eclipse her own until one day a mysterious stranger from a magical land appears with an irresistible offer. He has the power to make her wish come true, but his help may cost her everything. Dun, dun, dun. I'm so excited about this book for so many reasons. I am too. I love music. I love Mozart. I love girls breaking barriers and doing things that they're not supposed to do we love marie lou Um, it's got a cool map in the beginning it's i think it's gonna be a a great read i also i love this idea of like historical fiction but meeting magic and stuff like Mm -hmm. we've done a lot of fantasy worlds we've done some our world in the future kind of dystopian stuff but we haven't done much if any historic nothing that i can think based in history yeah like an actual figure in history that someone yeah, yeah. like woven some magical realism. I love that. I, I like I love when stories are like grounded in reality. Um, mm-hmm. Especially like someone as well known as Mozart. Like I think it will be very interesting to take his tale and well his sister's tale and um, like weave in some magic around that. And I do kind of to your point love stories about women like secondary women characters in the main version of things like someone's wife or sister or mother or something Mm -hmm. like that of a historical figure that we know or really any secondary character to like a main character but like really exploring them and their motivations and seeing a historical character through their eyes too so especially since she probably I mean she absolutely was overshadowed by her brother um I don't think many people know about her so I think it's kind of exciting that she gets to tell her story yeah that'll be good for research too I'm excited to do some Mm -hmm. research on this one and I'm excited to because I don't really know right now about Marie Lou's like where the idea came from or what influence that was so it'll be interesting she did answer one of my questions on Instagram she was doing like a live ask me anything and Uh I asked her if she played an instrument growing up because I thought maybe that was her inspiration and she did say she played piano for a while awesome I asked her if she would give us a dad joke but my question was not picked (laughs) well I can give you a dad joke 
It's, is it your turn again? Is it my turn or is it your turn? Oh, I think it's your turn, actually. I think it is my turn. But yeah. I also just realized that my dad joke closed, so let me pull it up again. Okay. Oh, how far do you want to read for... Oh. You decide. Okay, so let's read up to... Who directs the orchestra? Hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. One thing I will say that I didn't like about um, Ash Princess, just real quick, mm-hmm. I didn't like the chapter titles. Why not? I thought that they were just very bland and boring. Like, it, they didn't add anything to it. So in my mind, I was like, just number them. Like, they didn't... Like, remember when we read um, Daughter of Smoke and Bone? And... I knew you were going to mention that one. <laughs> yes. She or, did really, I think, really was it Muse of Nightmares? Strange the Dreamer? Yeah. One of them. She just... Every title was like this beautiful line that was somewhere in that chapter. And it was... They were just so meaningful. And I think these chapter titles were so dry and boring. And I was like, if you're not going to make the chapter title interesting, just number them. That's fair. I will say I did think about, I forget which chapter it was, but I was like trying to figure out why it had been named that after I read it. And I was kind of like unimpressed. So. Yeah. It, did, it definitely didn't add anything for me. Yeah. That's my one, my one gripe. But again, overall, highly recommend. Definitely. Okay. Um, so I looked up Earth Day jokes because, again, this episode will be posted on Earth Day. So, let's see. A lot of them are stupid. Uh, what's the difference between weather and climate? Well, I, I know the technical difference, but not a funny difference, so I don't know. <laughs> you can't weather a tree, but you can climb it. <laughs> That's like better than all the. I almost just want to leave it at that. That's good. That's good. That's yeah. great. <laughs> I need to ask James that one too because he likes to say he's one quarter of a meteorologist because he was a meteorologist for one year in college um, and then he switched majors, but that's not how it works. Oh, I like that a lot. Alrighty. Anything else? I think I'm good. If you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at MNK Talk YA. And tell us about what you've done for Earth Day and any famous trees that you know personally. And I want to know if anyone has performed surgery on themselves. <laughs> if you have not, I would not recommend it, though. This is not us endorsing self-surgery this, by any yeah, means. <laughs> this isn't a try-this-at-home moment. <laughs> All right. We'll start reading The Kingdom of Back by Marie Lou. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.